Uh, kia ora, good morning, happy 2024. I hope you have all had a lovely festive season and uh, your new year has started well. As you can see, I'm coming to you from the very picturesque town of Queenstown and where we have been with a camp down here, New Year's camp, with uh, a lovely set of believers, brothers and sisters, uh, from the southern part of our beautiful country here. And uh, they send warm greetings to you in, uh, in Cambridge. Seems quite appropriate to be surrounded by these kind of dry parched hills with lots of uh, production of, of beautiful fruit uh, running up the road here. As we head back and start our new series, uh, back to the land of Canaan and to the book of Genesis, where we'll be looking at the life of Joseph. So this series is one that we'll probably return to on a number of occasions uh, periodically, and we've called it Sunday School Stories Revisited. And the idea with it is that we often have these Sunday School Stories that we remember well from our childhood, but we often don't necessarily revisit them as adults and think, where do they fit in the larger story of what is going on? Is there more going on here than the, the moral lesson that I, like, I learned as a child? And so we're going to do a series, five-week series now in the life of Joseph, which has many incredible stories in it that you will remember. Um, and so we're going to explore that and look at it. So turn with me to Genesis 37, which is where we'll start. But while you're turning there, I just want to give the context of where uh, the story of Joseph sits. So the book of Genesis, or the origin story, is written down by Moses hundreds of years later to the Hebrew people as they are coming out of slavery in the land of Egypt. And he's writing these down, these old stories that would have come through over the, over the generations. But he's writing them down because these, this group of people have forgotten who they are and where they come from, who their God is, and the remarkable stories of the way their God has been with them all the way through. And so it's an important book for us because it's our origin story as well. It's our story of where we have come from and what our purpose and our identity and our, our significance comes from. So we see in Genesis 1 and 2 the beautiful creation that God had made um, that was uh, for this, this Adam and Eve, this man and this woman, to live in and flourish in and rule over. And we know that it was destroyed because of the choice of our representatives, Adam and Eve, choosing to not trust God and to take the, the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we see Genesis 3 to 11, all the destruction that comes from that choice and the reality of us as mankind not trusting in God. Genesis 12, it starts off where God says, well, I'm going to put my blessing on a particular person, the person of Abraham, and on his descendants who will become this nation of Israel, this treasured possession, this holy nation, this kingdom of priests, as Exodus 19 tells us. And so we see the patriarchs come. Uh, Abraham has the, the child Isaac. And uh, then we see Jacob and Esau born. Jacob, who will be the father of Joseph in our story. But this is no uh, gold-tinted story here. We see that in these patriarchs' families, that there is a lot of feuding and bitterness kind of going on, and we see it very much in this family here. We come to, to Jacob, and uh, in Genesis 30, we see Jacob, who is a deceiver um, by nature and practice. He is deceived by this uh, his, his father-in-law as he falls in love with Rachel, but he's tricked into actually marrying the older sister Leah, 
who he does not love. And then he has to wait another seven years and he marries Rachel, who he does love. And then they start having children, except Rachel, the beloved wife, does not. And so uh, Leah starts having these sons and then Rachel, in this envy and bitterness between the sisters, offers her maidservant who starts having children. And so the Leah offers her maidservant who starts having sons. But then eventually in Jacob's old age, his beloved wife Rachel has a beloved son named Joseph. And so we see in Genesis 30 this rivalry that sits there in this blended family right at its very beginning. And then it flows through. We see in 31 this tension between Jacob and his father-in-law Laban. We see in 32 and 33 this continuing uh, tension between Jacob and his twin brother Esau. In uh, 34, we see that this flows through into the sons in this family, the ones who would become the the, uh, the tribes of Israel. There's a, a story there about how their sister was defiled, and so they, in a, a deceptive, manipulative way, get back at this group in a place called Shechem. And um, we see this manipulation continue in that space. And so this this is sitting here in this place here of this this broken family line that's that sits there and so we come into thirty seven. One more key factor as we, we come into this chapter here is we see that um, in chapter thirty five, Rachel and having Joseph's younger son ben, uh, younger brother Benjamin uh, actually passes away. So Jacob loses his beloved wife. Joseph loses his mother, and we see in this family dynamic with 12 brothers and at least one sister um, that there is a whole lot of bitterness and rivalry, which we will read about in this chapter. So let's read the story, and then we'll pick a couple of things out of it at the end. Chapter 37, Genesis. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17. Just, just note that it often doesn't tell you ages in particular stories, but we see here, the author here chooses to write down how old Joseph was. Now, a number of you sitting there in the audience are teenagers now, and all of us who are a little bit older will remember what it was like to be a teenager. And he's basing this story here at this moment for us to think about Joseph and the age that he is. As a teenager, you're wondering where you fit, who you are, what your life is going to be. And you're wondering who is on your side. And so this is an extraordinary story. It's a really important story. A story that if you are a teenager that you should be reading and know regu reading regularly and know in detail. Because Joseph is a young man in a difficult environment. But as we'll see, even with all that is going on around it, He's a person who chooses from a young, from a very young age to be a person of integrity and trust in his God. And so the story here is a very important story for us to read, to not get involved or, or allow what is going on around us, the, the pressures um, when we are young, to shape us in particular ways that we're always meant to be looking to God. Let's carry on. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's 
wives. Everywhere else it's mentioned as the maidservants, but here it actually says that they're wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So there's three reasons we will see in this story why the brothers hated Joseph. Not just were a little bit, you know, oh, he's a frustrating kind of brother. We see a couple of, of pictures here of, of Sunday school stories, and you can kind of see in these the, the brothers that are sitting in behind and a little bit kind of angry with it. But we're going to see in here this, this frustration that sat there with it was actually hatred. Hatred enough that we will see later on that the majority of them were prepared to kill their, their very own flesh and blood brother. And so the first one is here is you'll see that it says that these brothers were up to no good. So the report that Joseph brings about them is not untrue. Um, but they did not want to be narked on in this way, and Joseph, who, who in his integrity wants to for them to live properly, calls them out on it by reporting to their father. But you can imagine what that caused within the brothers. Verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him, the, the, the coat of many colors, it's often called. That word ornate is often a bit difficult to translate, but, it, but it's certainly a robe that gave or confirmed to everybody around that Joseph was a favorite and very much loved. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So the second one here is this favoritism confirmed by this robe that was given them. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, Joseph now goes and has another dream, and he obviously missed uh, what this effect this dream had on his brothers, and so he shares it with them again. Listen to this. Verse 9, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So we see here that Joseph is this young man of 17. He is not at all loved by any of his siblings. And now his, his father, with the second dream, is already questioning a little bit, even though it says in the back of his mind that sits with it. So three reasons there that were sitting out that allowed the brothers to believe that their frustration with their brother was okay to move to hatred and bitterness that sits there in it. Now you could be critical of Joseph as a 17-year-old. Maybe he shouldn't have shared the dreams Maybe particularly the second dream might have been a mistake to have done. But how many of us at that age 
uh, did not have the clarity of thought to know exactly when to be uh, to speak and when to be quiet. And these dreams were clearly given to him by God. And we'll see the fulfillment of them at a later stage. So it's difficult to be too critical of Joseph. But what we're seeing here is the bitterness with the brothers. The story will continue. Um, and it comes to a, a, a particular stage. And what happens is Jacob says, the brothers have gone off. They've been off for a wee while. And I want you to go and check on them. And so he's going to send Joseph on this trip away. And interestingly enough, it's it's to a place called Shechem, which you might have heard of when we were talking about the, uh, chapter 34 and the issue that happened between the brothers and the Shechemites back then. So Jacob had cause for concern about the area that they were going in. And he's sending Joseph, even though Jacob should have known this tension that sat there with the siblings, to go and check on them and maybe report back about how they were doing. So it says that Joseph goes and he checks where they are and they've moved on from where they are and gone to another place. He find, eventually finds where they are and we'll pick it up in verse 18. But they, that's the brothers, saw him in the distance. Before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come! Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 pieces, shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him, Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. It's interesting reading rereading this story and one of the things that stood out for me as I, I read it is that moment when Jacob sends Joseph away to check on the brothers. 
and the little that Jacob know that that was the last time that he would see his son for 20 years. And for that 20 years, he will believe that his son is dead. And the brothers knew the story that he was alive, or probably alive, and yet none of them would tell the truth to Jacob even in his pain. Extraordinary, isn't it, what this bitterness within these brothers would do. I want to do four quick points in reflection on this story. The first one is, I think there's something in here that we're meant to see about Jacob and his parenting and this issue in the family. Jacob, in a number of occasions during his story, is shown as a very passive parent. That He should have seen what was going on here and stepped into that space and done what, done what was appropriate to to blend the brothers and make sure that the bitterness that had developed there, this hatred, was not um, continuing to be present. And so I don't want to make too much of it, but it, but it seems to be something that's, that's present in that story. And, and so I guess if any of you are parents out there, one of the things to be looking at is, is, is passive parenting is a tragic thing that can be in place. That we need to be thinking and be participating and active and looking at what is going on in our families and stepping in appropriately and lovingly into those spaces, not allowing bitterness to sit in place. The second one I want to say is um, you need to deal with envy, frustrations that sit in your life towards other people. It's very easy to sit in a space where and allow these things these things must have sat with these brothers and then developed over a prolonged period of time and then grew as this hatred grew and then they, they, they take further evidence as it's rolling along to, to confirm and, and grow this hatred. So what started off probably as a small bit of envy or frustration grows and metastasizes into this deep bitterness that ultimately the majority of them were comfortable to kill their brother. It was only Reuben and Judah's um, uh, stepping into those spaces that meant that Joseph was sold rather than killed. That's extraordinary to think that someone can get to that stage. But that is possible in our hearts. And we have to be honest in those places that we need to do it. Ephesians 4 says this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And as we run into a new year, maybe there's some body, some things that are just sitting in your soul that you need to deal with. And the Bible is saying, don't just find a you know, short or long-term park for them somewhere in your soul. Get rid of them because they can eat away. At your soul. The third one I want to say is that um, the story of Joseph, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, is an extraordinary story of God at work in Joseph's life, but also in the life of this family, and ultimately in the life of a family that will be the the the, the line and the nation through which our Savior Jesus Christ would come. And he's extraordinarily using what people meant for evil 
he will use for good. And what we need to see here at this moment in the story is that God is doing that when Joseph is in the pit, in the cistern, in the well, whatever you describe it. It's the place where uh, he's in the darkness and without hope in that sense. God is still working his plan in that place as much as he is when Joseph will one day be in the palace as prime minister doing this extraordinary thing where he gathers all this grain and stores it up, being able to save so much of the world by storing up this grain when this incredible seven-year famine will come. And so the point for us is this, is that, that, that we often think, here, yeah, God's at work when things are going well in my life. Yeah, the Bible is very clear that God is at work, full stop. And in fact, in many ways, God is at work and doing much of his activity in places of pain and suffering and hurt, places which we would call the pit. And so suffering is not somehow not part of what God might use in his working out of his plans in this world that he is still doing. This is Romans 8, 28. We believe this in place, that God is at work doing good for those who he has called according to his purpose. Then the last one I want to think about is this. There's an irony in this story. As Joseph comes down and the brothers plot and scheme what they're going to do with him. That they are going to, they despise and they reject the one who will ultimately be their rescuer. You see, the seven-year famine that will come later on, that if Joseph, through these dreams that God gives him, had not put aside the grain, that will, they would not have been saved. They would have all in low likelihood died in the famine. So God is making a provision, and it's going to come through this person, Joseph. And so they look upon with with malice and bitterness and hatred, despising and rejecting the one who will ultimately rescue them. Now we hear that alongside this 20 pieces of silver and our minds are drawn to hundreds of years later when another rescuer would come. One who would be betrayed for 20 pieces of silver would be despised and rejected by those who he came to rescue. Isaiah 53 talks about this. Verse 3 says, He, this is describing Jesus, our Saviour, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Listen to this though. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds. We are healed. The story of Joseph is written in a way that we call it a, a, a typology. We read it and, and people have seen dozens of 
um, types in the life of Joseph that point us ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ. And we see it here. We're going to come and take communion now. We take this bread and the juice and we are reminded of that, of this wounds by which Jesus gives our healing. That it was through him taking on, coming into our world and, and identifying with our suffering then ultimately suffering himself in this deep way where he would give of his life to save us. That we see in the story of Joseph. Joseph was a person of integrity, and in some extraordinary way as a young man, he trusted and believed in God that these dreams that he had been given would ultimately, through Joseph, God would do something remarkable in him. And it was this holding on and believing that even in the pit, even when he was being sold by his own family, that he trusted that God had a greater purpose of what he was doing. We can learn so much from that in our lives. But we see here, that a picture, beautiful picture there, that when Jesus is on the cross, being rejected by us, that he is doing it. That one day those who would receive him, even though he came to his own, his own did not believe in him, yet to those who received him, who believed in his name and what he was doing, he gave the right to become, what? Children of God. So all of you who take communion today and you have trusted in that, that Jesus is our rescuer, that what he was doing on that cross was for, in my place, for my sin. Take it with joy this day. That he was rejected for our sake. That by his wounds we are healed and we are rescued and we are saved. And so we begin 2024 with this beautiful knowledge that we have been rescued and that we are children of God. And we have God still at work, working out his plans. And so whether you are in a place more like the palace or you are in a place more like the pit, God is at work weaving his wonderful story uh, towards the ending, the beautiful ending that he has for all of us together, that we will be caught up together and be with him forever. So take communion with joy and thanksgiving this day and be blessed. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the story of Joseph. Thank you that it's a remarkable story that we can learn so much from the story itself, yet it pictures in a beautiful way the greater story of what was going on. That one day you, through this line of, of broken people, very broken people, out of this line you would bring the ultimate rescuer. The one who would rescue us from our sin by his shed blood on the cross, by his body broken. And as we take this bread and this juice now... We're reminded once again that it was because of his wounds that we are healed and have peace with you. Lord, may we continue to be thankful. May this be a year as we head into it that we would be further and further grateful for all the beautiful things that you have done and achieved for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his beautiful name. Amen.